This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how are you today? Good to have you along. Today you're going to spend some time in the north of the state where some work is being done on the Tanami Road. It's underway now. This is the road that stretches between Halls Creek and Alice Springs. There was some funding announced in the federal budget recently and the truck drivers who work this particular route are just, you know, can't believe what they're seeing, that this work is finally being done or started at least. Also in this part of the state, some major changes to the Kimberley's pastoral estate just being announced this morning with one of the region's most well-known cattle stations being handed back to traditional owners. All the details of that just after news headlines and a look at the weather right around Western Australia. It is six past 12 and I'm sorry to say that we're starting with some sad news this morning because a man has died from severe burns sustained in a fire on a farm in Western Australia's central wheat belt. Our Midwest rural reporter is Joe Prendergast. Joe, what happened? Belinda, the incident happened yesterday afternoon. Police are saying that the 57-year-old man was using a harvester on a property in the Gamaling Shire. There isn't a lot of detail that I can share with you, but we do know that St John's were called to treat him at about 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon. He was taken to the Gamaling Hospital with serious burn injuries. He was then transferred to the rescue helicopter, which flew him to Fiona Stanley Hospital yesterday uh, evening. But unfortunately, he has since died. So it was a header fire? We don't know at this stage if the header that the man was on caught fire or if he was in a paddock that had caught on fire due to lightning and was caught in that. We just don't know those details at this stage. And do you know how the fire started? No, but there was a number of fires right across the wheat belt yesterday which were started by lightning. So you could assume that this was the case in this particular fire at Gamaling, but we just don't know for sure. Uh, regardless, though, Belle, it's, it's really sad and we're thinking of the man's family and the community there in Gamaling. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone else injured or any other damage, Joe? There's no other injuries related to that incident that I'm aware of at this stage and hopefully it remains that way. We're told that about 190 hectares has been burnt in the Gamaling Shire but I say that with the caveat that some people would still be assessing that damage so that figure may move. Now you mentioned those fires yesterday. Are they still burning? Well, I've just had a look at the Emergency WA webpage. There are five bushfire advice warnings that are active in the wheat belt at the moment. They're in the shires of Karoo, Mora, Gamaling, Northam, and there's one in the Karara Conservation Park. Uh, the advice is, well, advice is the lowest level of warning when you have a bushfire advice, but it really is worth keeping an eye on that website and remaining tuned into the ABC as we'll let you know if any of those fires pick back up. But there was a fire yesterday at Kalingari in the Shire of Victoria Plains and it burnt out a farmer's header, field bin tractors and standing crop and it also took out a family member's truck which was in the paddock. Gavin Halligan is the Shire of Victoria Plains' Chief Bushfire Control Officer and he was telling me yesterday was an incredibly busy afternoon. Oh, yesterday we had a cell weather cell come down to the west of the Shire. First lightning strike 
we had lightning and then the first fire report was at Coogin. Quickly after that, there was a strike at Karaini, which is between Klingri and Yurikoin. That was about 20 to 30 hectares burnt. No sooner did that one go up, another one to the south of there at Adrian Brennan's place went up. That was a smaller fire. So units were en route to the first, second fire. Some of those units went and some of the units left the fire. That's the reason they got Adrian's out so quick. And then to compound that, there was a third one, fourth one, fourth fire now at Aussie Edmonds. They left that property to fight the fire at Adrian Brennan's. And then, of course, their property went up and they lost a, two tractors, two field bins, one harvester and Trevor Glass's road train. Just incredible that all of that went up so quickly too. Just take me through what happened there at the Edmonds's property because I understand that lightning struck a fence post. That seems to be the general consensus. It struck the fence post and run up the fence and ignited the side of the road verge and which has then ignited the paddock of crop. Been about 60 hectares. I think about 25 hectares wasn't harvested. I spoke to Aussie this morning. He didn't want to speak on the radio. He's had a pretty rough 24 hours, but he was saying that uh, he was told that it, it basically travelled through the wire and lit up the paddock in about five spots all at once. So you can just imagine how quickly that just went up. Oh, it did. It went up. It went up very quickly, very a lot of smoke, very hot, very hot fire. Units, you got to remember, we had units already at fire. Some mm. of them have left there to go. Other units that were held back in reserve landed in at Aussies. Uh, I had fifty farmer, fifty farmer fast attack units there. The Klingry fire truck there, one loader, one grader. We bogged the grader at one stage and the Klingery fire truck, two farmer water tankers and the Shire water tanker. But the reason they got onto it was like the reason they got that 60 hectares out so fast is those units getting there so fast. Everyone just peeled off, knew what they were doing, smashed it. Mm. It, um, it is really testament to their efforts that... I think about 20, 25 hectares of crop was lost in that particular fire at Edmund's property, but you can just imagine how quickly that could have got going or, or any of those fires really had five going that could have spread. It jumped the road, the Gamaling Road, as a heap of units arrived and they managed to put it out between the fire break and the road verge. If it had got, if it had kept going in that direction, we would have had bigger, it would have been a different story. And then, of course, at the end of Aussie's fire, as we were mopping up, there were reports of fires between Klingery and Unorcia which Brad Sinclair and I, the Nunorcia captain and I, left to investigate, which was in the middle of this bush. Can't get any vehicles to it. Can't get anything. No loaders, anything can get in there. It's too wet and boggy. So that was put out by um, rakes, shovels and knapsacks. It's still burning in the centre, but we should have it out by the end of today. So that fire's still smouldering away, still burning, but you think you'll get that out. Is that because you've had rain there as well? I was looking at the uh, weather radar earlier this morning and it looked like there was another system coming through. Uh, yeah, we did have rain through there. No, we haven't had a lot of rain, but it was enough to dampen it down. It's just old timber. We should have it burnt out as long as we don't have a big wind or anything stupid.
Gavin, the fire at Edmonds's property, that was just horrific, the images of that. We've got the uh, a family member's truck, the header, a couple of field bins and tractors. So the damage there was incredible. Was that the major damage that was sustained in these fires? Was, were, were the other losses mainly standing crop at the other four fires that you had yesterday? Uh, the, the other three, uh, two fires of standing crop. Yeah, that was the major loss by all, yeah, very much so. Is there anything that you need from this point on, Gavin, in terms of resources to monitor the fire that is still burning? Are you okay? We've got all the resources we need. It just shows you how good our Shire volunteers are yesterday. Everyone put in a great effort. Communications during fire, that's a big thing that you worry about. You were saying you were really using the text and the phone. Did that hold up okay? No, no. <laughs> the last fire, this is, I know this sounds ridiculous. The last fire, we had no phone service at all. So we were relaying by radio to the fire truck, which was parked on a hill with phone service to relay messages to Geraldton. Have you done that before? No, it's quite common down here. So just, uh, just take me through that again. You had people on the ground who were radioing to the, to the fire truck who was parked on a hill that had signal. Yeah, and they were um, they were telephoning triple zero and and Gerald and letting them know what was happening. But yeah, that's not uncommon to go into areas with no signal. The other one, the internet. Some of our we have a phone system called Bart, which I sheer bad luck. In three of three out of five fires, uh, we had that service didn't work either. But you know, we we have the radio. Everything there's always a backup. But the other dangerous thing is if the power goes out, um, you've only got eight hours of telephone signal, whether it's mobile phone or landlines now. So that's probably more critical. Gavin Halligan, he's Victoria Plains Chief Bushfire Control Officer, and he was speaking to Joe Prendergast. Quarter past 12 here on the Country Hour. And as Joe mentioned earlier, the majority of fires burning in the wheat belt are currently at an advice level. So a bushfire advice is in place for people in the vicinity of the southern part of Beekeepers Nature Reserve in the Shire of Karoo. A bushfire advice also in place for Nambin, Coombedale and Wathiru in the Shire of Mora. Another advice is in place for you if you're in the vicinity of the Karara Conservation Park, which is in the Shire of Perinjury. And a bushfire advice in place for parts of Ross- Rossmore and Jenicabine in the Shire of Gemelling. And an all-clear advice is in place for the fire that was burning at Copley in the Shires of Northam and York. 16 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. To the southwest of the state now where a sheep has had to be put down by one of the farmers in the region after being found with a gunshot wound to the head. Now, that gunshot wound didn't kill the sheep, so it's still alive and had to be put down. Stuart Stevenson farms at Bridgetown, about 160 kilometres south of Perth. He says the sickening incident took place last week and the police are trying to figure out who's responsible. My son got home late Friday. He's seen that sheep in the house paddock and he was horrified. So he texted me a picture 
And I was at Perth, and I was just going, oh, no. So he had, to, he, he had to put it down, which is not nice for anybody, no. you know. No, you know? not at all. Yeah, yeah, and just seeing the poor thing that had been suffering for a while, it was just bloody horrible. But I asked him to leave it there so I could have a look at it, so I could identify exactly what's happened to it. Um, and when I had a look at it, you could actually see that it had been shot. It had been shot through the nose and it's blown all its jaw out. Was it just the one one sheep, Stuart? Have there been others um, that have been injured or taken? Well, there's no other ones we could find that it injured, but it looks like when I check the fence line, you can see some drag marks under the fence and evidence that um, um, I've lost a couple of sheep because uh, there's, there's wool all the way with the drag marks up to the road verge and there's car tyre marks and things like that. So, so I mean, it sounds like perhaps a, a sheep rustling incident. Would that be right? Well, yeah, good chance. I mean, I know all my neighbours and there's not, not one of them would do anything like that. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit confronting, especially where we live. So we're, we're a bit out the way. Yeah, I imagine a really distressing situation for you and your family to have to deal with, Stuart. How are you all doing at the moment? No, we're doing fine. I'm just annoyed that people could do that and leave an animal to suffer. I'm just, I'm really annoyed. You know, one thing, stealing the sheep, but leaving one to suffer is, is just really irritating and really annoying. Has this happened before in the area? Is this sort of thing common in Bridgetown? No, not a lot, but, you know, we put it on the community page to alert others and then there's lots of stories coming out. So to answer that question, I believe so. I think it's an ongoing thing. Um, What I'm concerned about is because of the price of living and the cost of food and everything, this might start to occur more often. You mentioned, um, Stuart, that you've reported it to police. Do you know if they're investigating? Well, unfortunately, police uh, probably are. They're probably keeping an eye out for all this, but there's not a lot they can do. I mean, you know, we're not sure what time it happened, whether it happened on the the Thursday night, the Friday. We're not really 100% sure. You know, there's no real evidence of anything that you can tell who took them. It would be very difficult for the police to actually track that down. Do you have any advice, Stuart, to farmers or livestock owners in the area? Well, just to keep an eye out for uh, suspicious behaviour, unusual cars, people that not normally um, going down your road. I'd, I'd be stopping them and questioning them. Just what are you doing in the area? That's about all I can say is just keep an eye on what's going on around you. Bridgetown Farmer. Stuart Stevenson speaking to Dominique Baines and apparently Stuart's got a flock of around 100 sheep. 20 past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC and shortly an update from the newsroom and then checking the weather conditions. First though, a new seasonal standard for canola has been introduced to account for all the crops that have been severely affected by the weather, particularly across Victoria and New South Wales. The Australian Oil Seeds Federation uh, had a talk to domestic crushers, exporters and the bulk handlers to work out the extent of the quality issues and then what options might be available for weather-damaged canola. The Federation's CEO, Nick Goddard, says without the introduction of this new seasonal standard, a lot of canola would have been knocked back. Canola's certainly um, taken a fair share of the, of the weather over the last uh, few months and particularly over the last few weeks. What we're seeing with the early deliveries is certainly instances of weather-damaged canola. 
and applying the existing standard, the current standard, to that canola would be rejected. So what we've done over the last few days is consult with industry and identify that we really can't turn growers away from the, from the receival stands on the basis of the quality of the canola. So we've opened up a new seasonal standard only for this season to accommodate the weather-damaged and stressed canola. In Australia, we only deal with what we consider sort of an A-grade uh, canola or in industry terms CSO1 or CSO1A. This is now going to be the seasonal standard CSO1S for season. So will, will this affect pricing at all? It's very early days. We've just seen the first deliveries coming in from northern New South Wales and down to central New South Wales. So we really haven't had time to evaluate what the quality implications might mean for crushing. So it's very difficult to say at this stage what, uh, if any, the pricing implication there could be with this until we've fully evaluated the seed. One option that growers may want to consider is just storing storing the grain in a storage system until the prices have been determined. I'm sure that'll happen over the next week or so once more grain comes in and it can be better analysed and determined how the, the implications for processing. So this seasonal standard isn't so much to uh, guarantee a price for farmers, it's more just to keep the supply chain moving? Yeah, well, it's really giving... An, uh, growers an option to deliver because otherwise according to the um, conventional standard it would be rejected because of the amount of weather damaged grain within there so yes it's giving an option for growers to be able to deliver and I'm sure that it will be priced accordingly depending on its ability you know the implications for processing when I say weather damaged it, it's ranging from greyish coloured seed to chalky white coloured seed and the, the extent to which that might may or may not be mould is really yet to be determined. So rather than just giving it a blanket name of mould, we're, we're actually just calling it you know, weather damaged for seasonal, seasonal conditions until we get uh, a, b- a better understanding of exactly what the implication is of, of the grain and um, you know, if, if there is mould indeed on it or not. Obviously, this does open up that option for farmers that may not have thought about trading their harvest, but... There's still going to be a pretty significant reduction in yields across the eastern states, surely, even with this consideration. Yeah, look, I think irrespective of the quality of the seed, one thing that's fair is where it is good, it's very good. So we're seeing crops that that are on the higher ground and haven't been impacted by the wind, the hail, the rain (laughs) or the floods uh, look very good. But those that have been impacted, certainly uh, that's going to impact the overall yield from a level that was looking extremely good. So we're probably going to come back to about an average yield in New South Wales and Victoria from what might have been well above average um, when we're looking at the crops sort of in August, September. Australian Oil Seeds Federation CEO Nick Goddard speaking to Jane McNaughton. 24 past 12 here on the Country Hour and as we've been discussing over the last few weeks or so, there's a lot of frustration, anxiety, a lot of stress around grain growers trying to secure a contract with the CBH Group, the state's main grain handler. As you would be aware, if you've been trying to get your hands on one of those contracts, the contracts do offer a much higher price than the competition. Problem is, it's limited to a certain amount of tonnage that you can access per day, and obviously they're getting snapped up very quickly. And there are some claims that there are some individuals... um, and brokers using so-called bots 
to really access those contracts much quicker than anyone else sitting there, you know, pressing their button on the keyboard trying to secure a contract. So basically the story goes that you don't have any chance of getting that if you're not using one of these bots to kind of secure a contract in less than a second or so. So now I've just seen something on Twitter. CBH is announcing a little bit of a change to the way the contracts are going to be handled from here on in. It's saying from the 28th of November, CBH Marketing and Trading is going to introduce temporary two business day grain contracting halt for growers who secure CBH contracts equal to or above 40 tonnes. And this was the announcement just posted to YouTube uh, about an hour or so ago. Hi, I'm Jay Craig, Chief Marketing and Trading Officer at the CBH Group. I just wanted to inform you about a few changes we're having to grow a contracts starting very soon to ensure that it is more equitable and more growers are able to get CBH contracts. This year has been a challenging year for everyone trying to access CBH contracts. But it is important to say that CBH Marketing and Trading has been keeping prices close or near to reflecting international values. And as a result, the demand for contracting has been significant. To this end, we are now looking to introduce a few changes to try and assist growers to ensure that everyone can get a contract. Growers who access a contract of 40 tonnes or more will be required to wait two business days prior to being able to contract again. The reason for the introduction of this is to ensure that we can get a greater spread across all of our members and allow every member access to grower contracts. Of course, in a record year of production, it is difficult for marketing and trading to be able to provide all growers with a contract and buy the entire crop. But by assisting other growers once you have received a contract and allowing two business days prior to getting another one should see an improved spread across Western Australian growers. We do thank you for your patience during these very challenging times and we do look forward to continuing to work through you as we will be there contracting with Western Australian growers through harvest and beyond. That is Jason Craig. He's in charge of marketing and trading at the CBH Group, the state's main grain handler, and that short video just going to air on YouTube uh, earlier this morning. What do you make of that? Does it go far enough, the changes to these contracts that sort of kick in from the 28th of November? Uh, introducing temporary two-business-day grain contracting halt for growers who secure contracts with CBH equal to or above 40 tonnes. Does that make it all equitable or does something else need to be done on top of that? Let me know on the text 0448 922604 and hot off the press this text just saying that this is really just fluffing around the edges, does nothing to stop individuals and brokers using software bots to unfairly get contracts before others who are playing by the rules. Do you agree with that or not? Let me know on the text 0448 922604. 28 past 12 and shortly checking in with the news and taking a look 
uh, at the weather right around Western Australia. Just before we do that, though, take a listen to this. This Thursday is our Radiothon Appeal. We're supporting the work of Food Bank, who bring affordable food to people in need throughout Western Australia. We'll share some practical tips on how to reduce your weekly grocery bill. Every time I go shopping, the cost of shopping has gone right up. And remember, every dollar raised brings two meals to people in need. Donate now and listen to Radiothon for your chance to win some money can't buy experiences. Head to abc.net.au slash gives. And that figure really jumps out at you, doesn't it? That every dollar raised brings two meals to people in need. And tomorrow on The Country Hour, you're going to meet some of the WA producers who are doing their bit and regularly donating to Food Bank. People like Pemberton avocado grower Susie Delroy. She's doing her bit by Food Bank. Look, Food Bank actually make it really easy for us. They come to our packing shed to pick up the avocados that we're donating. So at the moment we're donating about 400 kilos a week, uh, which is about sort of 1,000 to 1,500 avos, depending on size. So how long have you actually been sending it to Food Bank for? Uh, So we've been donating to Food Bank for about five years now. Certainly throughout COVID there was probably even more avocados that needed to find a home um, with so many of the food service sort of areas shut down. Yeah. The avos that you're donating, where would they go if they weren't going to food bank? Look, if they weren't going to food bank, these are avocados that haven't met our Delcado spec. Um, They're not going to make it into food service. So if they weren't going to food bank, they would be coming back to our farm and getting tipped into our dams to feed our marin. Mm. So why is this something that you guys decided to start doing? Oh, look, we just, we really want to minimise food waste and, you know, we we put so much effort into growing these, you know, beautiful avocados. We we don't want to see them wasted um, and we think it's a good cause. That is Pemberton avocado grower Susie Delroy. She's one of around 26 growers in the southwest of the state alone who are donating to Food Bank this year so that families in need do not go hungry Susie was speaking to Georgia Hargreaves and more on that tomorrow as part of the Radiothon. I hope you can be part of it. And if you do have a little bit of money that you can donate to that cause, it would be fabulous to hear from you and see your name on the donation list. It is 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour and Hurling Core is here with an update from the newsroom. Belinda, making news today, WA's Commissioner for Children and Young People says raising the age of criminal responsibility was a key issue discussed at today's youth justice meeting in Perth. The state's Premier met key stakeholders to discuss ways of improving WA's youth justice system following ongoing criticism of Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre. A man has admitted in court to killing another man in Northbridge last year. Manab Pan Mading died after an altercation outside a nightclub in November. In the Stirling Gardens Magistrates Court today, Samuel Mohammed Lamin Ba pleaded guilty to manslaughter. And the WA Police Union has paused its industrial action until Friday as it awaits for a new pay offer from the state government. The union is set to meet WA Police Force representatives today for a second hearing. The union's president says industrial action has been halted as an act of good faith while officers officers seek a 5% pay increase and other changes to conditions. More news at one o'clock. Thank you so much for that, Helene. It is 28 to 1. Still to come between now and the news at 1. 
The results of today's sheep and lamb sale at Katanning, Tracy Kilner, along with those details. Some upgrades to the Tanami Road get underway and the truck drivers who use that strip can't believe it is actually happening and are really quite excited by the prospect of having a decent road to travel across. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. And Luke Huntington is with you this afternoon. Luke, take us for a look around the Southwest Land Division. Yeah, Southwest Land Division. So um, we still have that um, deep trough over the area, but uh, now it's moved inland. So places along the west coast now are a bit cooler than yesterday, um, mainly sort of around the mid 20 degree mark. And that heat is now pushed through the sort of the wheat belt and the great southern areas. And they're going for temperatures in the low 30s today. And with that trough through the inland parts of the Southwest Land Division, there is a further risk of uh, thunderstorms and showers. Um, but we, we, the showers and thunderstorms are basically not going to produce much rainfall, so maybe one to three millimetres uh, at most, and um, there could be some gusty winds associated with storms as well, but we're not expecting anything uh, severe. Um, so that trough is going to continue to push eastwards uh, during tomorrow as well. Uh, looks like uh, any showers or thunderstorms will be mostly um, pushing through uh, east of the Southwest Land Division uh, tomorrow, so we're not expecting any storms through that area. Uh, the only sort of rainfall is just in some light onshore flow over the far southwestern part, so pretty much southwest of Mandra to Albany may pick up a light shower uh, tomorrow, not too much in that. And then we do see a uh, cold, weak cold front coming through on the Friday period, again not pushing that far inland and sort of areas southwest of Perth to Bremer Bay might pick up a light shower associated with that. And over eastern parts of the southwest land division there is a sort of a trough branch um, running through the sort of the Esperance area through that southeast coastal district and and there could be a thunderstorm just fire up in that trough during the afternoon and evening period. So there is that risk uh, through that area. Um, rainfall might be a little bit more if you do get some thunderstorms through that area, maybe 5 to 10 millimetres if you do get a storm uh, through that sort of that Esperance area. And then heading into Saturday, uh, it really does clear out. We have a new ridge coming through, so that'll... Um, bring some drier air in, uh, but still some onshore flow about the south coast may produce a light shower. All right, let's move into northern and eastern parts. How's it looking there? Because there has been some incredible rainfall, uh, particularly looking at the Kimberley. Yeah, definitely through the Kimberley. So it continues with the heavy rainfall. Um, some places got uh, over 100 millimetres of rain. Um, widespread, it was around 20 to 50. But um, we still have that tropical low well off the Pilbara coast there. It's still pumping in the moisture through the Kimberley area. Uh, so we'll probably see those heavy falls continuing today um, as well with the thunderstorm activity. Um, sort of mainly during this afternoon and into the evening, we'll see probably see those heavier falls with the storms. So there could be a uh, severe thunderstorm warning issued for heavy rainfall if we do see those thresholds being breached uh, through the Kimberley area. And uh, the thunderstorms are even extending into northeastern parts of the interior. Not quite as heavy, but um, that risk is through there as well. And maybe just over very very far eastern parts of the of the Pilbara district.
Um, then as we head into tomorrow, the heavy rainfall does continue over the over the Pilbara, uh, sorry, over the Kimberley, and uh, those falls of widespread 20 to 50 are still there with probably isolated falls up to around uh, 80 millimetres. I think the risk would be uh, mainly through the sort of the northern and western parts of the Kimberley. The eastern parts are probably less of a risk to get uh, some heavy falls uh, tomorrow. And we still have uh, some thunderstorms just down the trough over the eastern Gascoigne and into the goldfields and Eucla region. But again, uh, like today, they won't be producing much rainfall down there, um, just a few millimetres at most and maybe some gusty winds uh, with storms. And then as the trough pushes east, um, we're still going to be expecting thunderstorms pretty much right through the Kimberley, the Pilbara, the interior, the Eucla and the eastern goldfields on that Friday period. And with the trough um, deepening a little bit, it's drawing a lot more moisture down from the Kimberley. So we could, could even see some heavy falls down as far south as um, the Eucla region, uh, the eastern parts of the goldfields and into southern parts of the interior. So there is some, a heavy rainfall risk uh, with thunderstorms if they were to form in that area. And uh, still expecting some moderate heavy falls over the Kimberley area but not as not as heavy as we've seen over the last um, couple of days and as we head into the weekend um, the ridge will start pushing all the thunderstorms uh, into the Kimberley eastern Pilbara and into the interior region with some uh, isolated moderate heavy falls and by the Sunday period with that ridge pushing in it'll bring some drier air up from the south so really the thunderstorm activity is going to be mostly confined uh, to the Kimberley and just to, to the northeastern parts of the interior and then the warnings this afternoon luke yeah we don't have many warnings we've only got a strong wind warning and that's for the esperance coast great thank you very much appreciate that it is 22 to 1 and now taking a look at the rainfall figures around the state here's richard hudson yeah and in the northern and eastern forecast district it's the same story heaps of rain in the kimberley I'm only going to go through those that are 50 and above, believe it or not, because you can pretty much guarantee everywhere got a fair bit of rain, and most places actually seem to get above 30 or 40. But the ones above 50 are Camballan, 122, Derby Airport at 115, and Derby Main Roads, 96, Flora Valley, 52, Kachana, 55, Lansdowne, 104, Margaret River Airstrip, 96. Mount Winifred, 52, Sophie Downs, 60, Udiala, 96, and Warman, 58. Uh, nothing for anywhere else in the northern and eastern forecast districts, and it was pretty scattered in the southwest land division as well. In the central west, it was mostly one to four, but nothing more. In the lower west, Dwelling Up, six, Jarradale, five, at the Deep Herd Station, Julemar Forest, eight, Minston Park, six, Mount Solus, five, Mundaring, seven, New Nile 5, Pinjarra 8 to 9 mils, Rolly Stone 7. In the southwest, it was 1 to 4 mils, but nothing at 5 or above. In the southern coastal region, there was nothing over a mil. And then in the central wheat belt, 1 to 4, and the Great Southern was 1 to 3. That's it. Great. Thank you for that, Richard. It is 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And just a few moments ago... You heard from Jason Craig, the Head of Marketing and Trading at the state's main grain handle, the CBH Group, with the news that was uh, posted on Twitter and, and YouTube that from the 28th of November, so that starts on Monday, CBH is going to introduce temporary two-business-day grain contracting halts for growers who secure CBH contracts equal to or above 40 tonnes. Quite a few of you keen to 
have your say on that on the text 0448922604. This from Todd at South Tamman. This is an absolute scam by CBH. 40 tonnes. I'm harvesting more than that per hour. CBH should either buy grain and post the price for the day or just not post a price. It's becoming a big joke, says Todd. Uh, This too, that CBH video on YouTube and Twitter smells. They have lost the whole point of a grower cooperative. They're now operating like a big business where profits are king. Chris says there's something fishy about the CBH contracts. Why would any commercial business offer prices so far above the going rate? And then this too from Mark. Why can't every grower be given a contract for each grain grown rather than the online system? This would be a much fairer way. What do you think? What do you know? Let me know on text 0448 922604 In Western Australia's Pilbara, the balance between resource companies and ancient cultural heritage is once again under the microscope. An independent reporter has been appointed by Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek to look into claims significant Aboriginal sites are under threat from heavy industry on the Burrup Peninsula, just near Karratha. As Tom Robinson explains, the independent reporter is now visiting the area to meet industry representatives and traditional custodians. The Burrup Peninsula in Western Australia's north is home to more than a million pieces of rock art that hold strong cultural significance to traditional custodians like Samantha Walker. It's a very spiritual place there. It has great connection to who we are. The plants, the animals are very, very important to me. Precious, unique rock art that is very significant, that tells stories of my people from generations and generations. But the burrup, called Murujuga in local language, is also home to towering gas and chemical manufacturing plants. It hosts Australia's largest liquefied natural gas producer, Woodside, a fertiliser plant owned by Yarra Pilbara and is the planned site for a new fertiliser factory owned by Perdamon. Earlier this year, Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek rejected an application to stop the Perdamon plant made by traditional owners in the Save Our Songlines group, who argued the proposal would desecrate multiple sacred heritage sites. Minister Plibersek said she made the ruling based on the views of the democratically elected and legally constituted traditional owners group, the Murujuga Aboriginal Corporation. But she did agree to a review under a different section, Section 10, of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Heritage Protection Act. Samantha Walker says the arrival of the Section 10 reporter Alison Stone gives locals the first chance to have their say. To feel the importance of my country, I need you to come, come, smell, feel and taste while it's still here. Alison Stone will assess the significance of the area, any threats to Aboriginal heritage and the socio-economic impact that ministerial intervention would have. I am surprised with the attention that you know this whole campaign has, has gotten. It, it, we've got to step it out, step up the plate and let's go. You know, this is for our future of our families you know, and for everybody. That's Save Our Songlines leader, Raylene Cooper. The group argues industrial emissions are damaging the region's art and industry is harming the spiritual well-being of the people. I've been told 
uh, by Ms Stone that she will be back and forth on a, a number of visits. We don't exactly know. She's going to find how remarkable and magnificent the landscape is here around Murrajuga and the Burrup in particular. The legally constituted traditional owners group, the Murrajuga Aboriginal Corporation, can't block development in the Burrup. And in a statement, CEO Peter Jeffries says the group supports the Section 10 assessment. The effects of industrial emissions on rock art has been studied several times with varying results. University of Western Australia archaeology expert Benjamin Smith says there's scientific consensus showing the emissions have an acidic effect which damages the art. Very clear from the, the lab results that we're getting that as soon as those rocks drop below a pH of 6.4, Uh, those surfaces start to degrade. Professor Smith says research published this month reveals the first photographic evidence of damage to the art since industry began in the 1960s. He says on current emission levels, the art will be gone in about 100 years. It's irreversible. So once those rock surfaces start to degrade, there's nothing one can do. We have to stop the acidity getting onto the rocks. The degradation all depends on the amount of emissions coming out of those stacks. So each time you increase emissions, the acidity on the rocks gets worse and the degradation speeds up. This is disputed by the companies in the area. Yarra Pilbara Environment and Quality Manager Ty Hibbard says studies commissioned by the company show no evidence of damage caused by emissions. Yarra has an extensive um, monitoring uh, program in place surrounding ammonia and technical ammonium nitrate plants. And Yarra has also undertaken further heritage studies and monitoring you know, with the Murdoch Rangers uh, over and above uh, regulatory requirements. The WA government has launched its own monitoring program jointly funded by Woodside, Yarra and iron ore giant Rio Tinto, alongside the Morajuga Aboriginal Corporation. Dr Hibbard says Yarra Pilbara will be closely watching the results. We will continue to support that program and, and await the outcomes um, of uh, those studies. And we've also welcomed the, the investigator uh, to our sites and will continue to um, engage with them as they require any further information um, to support their investigation. A Woodside spokesperson says the company is also waiting on the government's monitoring and claims previous research didn't prove LNG production is damaging the rock art. Yarra and Woodside will take part in Miss Stone's inquiry and both say they take heritage protection on the peninsula seriously. Perdaman declined to comment. The independent reporter Alison Stone wasn't available for comment, but a government spokesperson says there is no timeline on the process and an outcome isn't expected this year. But if her campaign is unsuccessful, Raylene Cooper isn't ruling out further challenges to major industry on the borough. Not really going to say too much, but you know, if it comes to you know court appeals and court hearings, well, look, I'm up for it. Raylene Cooper, ending that story from Tom Robinson about the federal inquiry, which is trying to figure out if activities by resource companies are having a detrimental effect on ancient rock art on the Burrup Peninsula. 13 to 1. Well, from the Pilbara to the Kimberley now, because a major change to the pastoral estate has just been announced in this region this morning, with one of the region's most well-known cattle stations being handed back to traditional owners. The WA government is converting 165,000 hectares at Alquestro Station from pastoral lease to freehold land and a nature reserve. El Questro is about 
100 kilometres east of Kununurra. So it's being returned to the Wanjina Woonga Willangun people. The Willangun Aboriginal Corporation is going to sublease the grazing portion of the property to a local pastoralist for up to five years before getting rid of the cattle. The Gaday Group will continue to run the tourism portion of the operation under a new Indigenous land use agreement. Its Chief Executive, Grant Wilkins, says it's good news for all parties. The current tenure as a pastoral lease is a little bit unusual given the tourism operation of the property. So the security of us being able to develop you know, experiences and um, you know, not just cabins and new sort of tourism experiences, but then you know, actually engaging more with the Indigenous and the, from a cultural aspect as well, uh, is something that is quite challenging under a pastoral lease So and doesn't give you necessary security of long-term tenure. So the benefit of a 99-year lease and giving the land back to our traditional owners and then us taking that tenure allows us to invest capital into the property, which obviously um, has become a very busy place over the last few years, particularly with Australia being cut off from the, from the rest of the world. But obviously the best part of it is that we can do cultural tourism. And I think if I reflect on my time up there, as a, I took my family up there last year and it's quite frustrating because you're sitting in a in a, an amazing uh, experience on, on the Chamberlain Gorge and you're listening to a, a, a tour guide talk about cows, and you know, which is an important part of the history of, of El Questro. But you know, you'd, you'd much rather listen to some traditional, you know, cultural stories from, you know, even from a traditional, an Indigenous person would be amazing too, actually being that guide rather than a, an English backpacker. Grant Wilkins, you touched a bit on the issues around having a pastoral lease while running a tourism operation. How problematic has it been to run cattle at El Cuestro, given that yeah. you are a tourism group? Look, that's right. I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's quite a lot of the land is actually quite challenging to run cattle anyway, but uh, there is obviously some very good grazing land. But at the end of the day, it's an amazing tourism piece of land. It's an amazing tourism attraction. So I think it, it has been quite challenging, main, maintaining fences, running cattle. It's just not our core business, and it's really not what that, I don't think, what that site should be from a... Uh, a pastoral perspective. So, you know, but under the under the legislation and the the agreement that we had with government under pastoral lease, you know, we had to run cattle. You know, so it was a an unusual situation where, you know, that the tenure just wasn't quite right. That the way that it's been structured. So it's been an uncomfortable position, probably for government, for um, you know, Western Australian government. And it's also been a little bit uncomfortable for ourselves as a tourist operator running a, a pastoral lease. So the benefit of this of this transaction, I suppose, is that. Where else can you find a win-win-win where the government actually solves a, a long-standing pastoral lease that you know doesn't quite fit? You've got a, a tourism operator like us, which gets tenure and uh, is able to invest into into the property and engage much further with our traditional owners. And then you've got you know, the biggest benefit, which is the Willingham Corporation, and they're able to actually take control and, and own the land on a, on a conditional freehold basis and you know, give the land back to, to the rightful owners. G'day Group Chief Executive Grant Wilkins speaking to Vanessa Mills. It is nine to one here on the Country Hour and we're going to just stay in this part of Western Australia for a little bit longer because the sealing of the Tanami Road is now underway and truck drivers are, well, pretty much thrilled to finally see some improvements to the notorious track. In last month's federal budget, uh, the federal government confirmed funding to seal the Tanami, which runs about a thousand kilometres from Halls Creek to Alice Springs, 
John Bellato is the truck driver who services the Granites Gold Mine just across the border in the Northern Territory. And he says seeing work underway in the top end is just a real joy. I mean, they only started that project in August, end of August type of thing. They put their big camp out there and workshop facilities and started doing the detours and all that. And they've already sealed, I think it's 16 or 17 kilometres of that road north of Unamu. So, yeah, they're just doing an amazing job. They've got, you know, 125-room camp, the big concrete crossings on all the creeks. It's, um, yeah, it's incredible to see. The, yeah, so all those election promises, believe me, they're all getting delivered. It's amazing to see. Is that a surprise for you? How long have you been driving the Tanami? Um, yeah, it is a surprise. It's just welcoming. Yeah, like yeah. So we've been up and down that road for twenty-seven years, and um, yeah, I mean we've done thirty-eight thousand trips to that site, and so in our lives, yeah. So it's just beautiful to see that infrastructure going in, and knowing that it's money well spent, it's going to be there forever. And yeah, like if they do get it across the border, I know the Western Australian government is pushing their side also so they've got crews out their side doing the same thing and yeah when you think it's 700 kilometers or 750 kilometers from Unamu to the great northern highway on the other side and if that can get achieved in the next couple of years well you know like the the flow-on effect of all the cattle from up north plus all the um you know vegetables and fruit out of the Kununurra irrigation area will all come through across the desert it's so much shorter are you optimistic that will happen then in the, in the coming years, given what's happening now? Yep, definitely, yeah. So, yeah, there's a 60K job and then there's a 90K extension on it. I mean, the surveyors are out there banging in pegs and marking that road and that. So, yeah, it's um, it's definitely happening this time, Matt. You know, like it's um, really exciting to see. Yeah, it's just beautiful Australian infrastructure that will be there for life. And, and yeah, when you think of the amount of tourists and that, I mean, you know, Alice Springs people will be nearly be able to drive to Broome for a weekend. This is actually not that far, you know. So, yeah, no, hopefully they keep going. They will because, um, yeah, once you get it so far, it's, it seems a lot easier because the end's in reach then. You know, I'm not sure the last time I heard a, a truck driver speak optimistically about the Tenemai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a long life and out there and living on that desert. But, yeah, no, this time it's, you know, they've got, yeah, they've definitely got a, a big, a big strong contractor that's got a lot behind them and a lot of big machinery. And so, you know, like, um, yeah, their timelines are uh, they're breaking every record in the book. You know, like laying that material down and and um, yeah, the big crushes making the road base. It's just, yeah, it's just amazing to see every every trip you go out there. You can just see progress, and yeah, it's just it's nearly exciting to be honest with you. Yeah, he really sounds happy about it, doesn't he? John Bellato from GNS Transport speaking to Max Rowley about some of the progress being made in sealing the Tanami Road, five minutes to one. And the Australian wine industry is going into battle with the European Union to maintain the right to use the name Prosecco. The European Union wants a ban on Australian producers using the variety name as part of the Australian-EU trade agreement, which is being negotiated right now. Alfred Pizzini from Pizzini Wines in Victoria's King Valley was part of a group of winemakers who travelled to Canberra this week to brief the politicians. It really is a meeting to, to try and secure the name, the use of the name Prosecco internationally, not just in Australia, but internationally. So um, it's, it's going to be some interesting meetings to try and get that message across when they go into the free trade agreements. 
that they don't trade the name Prosecco away for some other products. So can you explain what it would mean for the wine industry and perhaps even your your own business as well if the name Prosecco was no longer allowed to be used here in Australia? I think in the short term it would be economically damaging, without a doubt. Probably over a period of time there's a chance that we might work our way through that. But I, I think I think we've got to be careful. We're not allowed. To, we're not allowed to give any ground because it's it's the use of the name of a great variety. I think Annie, and that's important. As far as you know, how much cost? Good, good question. I think it'd be pretty devastating to be honest. What would it be called if it was banned? Would it have another name, or would you call it Australian Prosecco? Or well, there's 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 two alternatives. The, the Italians are trying to trying to make us use the name Glera. And Glera is a, is another clone of um, of Prosecco or, or Australian Prosecco. They're the two things that they've been trying for us to support. But with Wine Australia and, and, and with the producers, we weren't prepared to accept either one of them. I guess what's in a name, though, Fred, um, would, the product wouldn't really change, but I guess not having the word Prosecco on it, would it really stop people from, from buying it and consuming Prosecco? Probably could. I think, you know, the name Prosecco is just a beautiful just a beautiful marketing term, I suppose. I know that in our case we do a little bit of export into Japan, into 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 the EU, into London, and we cannot use the name Prosecco. It has to be called Glera. Um We can't even put Australian Prosecco on there at this current time. I think one of the problems that we were having or potentially will have is, you know, a lot of the export of Prosecco goes through through the Singapore ports. If we lose that naming right, there's a very good chance that we'll lose the opportunity of being able to send Prosecco through the, the Singapore um, trades as Prosecco to any country that might want to use it. Winemaker Alfred Pizzini with Annie Brown. Two minutes to one to the markets and 6,687 sheep and lambs were yarded for sale at Catanning's market. That is down 128 on last week. Tracy Kilner, what was the yarding like today? Numbers were down for a very mixed quality yarding. Extra heavy lambs gained with demand while the lighter weights eased on quality. Heaviest lambs returned $163 while restocker and feeder buyers were seeking the better quality store lines. Heavy mutton eased again while lighter weight ewes gained with some restocker interest. The lightweight lambs sold from $4 to $70. Heavier weights under 18 kilos carcass weight sold from $80 to $120. The trade weight lambs returned $100 to $139. And heavy lambs sold from $125 to $153. Extra heavy weight lambs gained $10 selling to $163 a head. Crossbed hoggets made from $50 to $90, while Merino U hoggets sold to $89 and Weathers to $97, both gaining $4 a head. Light store use eased, selling from $10 to $42, while the heavier stores sold to $65 a head. The medium weight use made from $30 to $99, and prime heavy use eased, selling from $30 for crossbred use to $80 for the Merino lines. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Tracy. A couple of texts on the CBH contracts. I wonder if the CBH board members have managed to get contracts. Hmm? And this from Ron, at least CBH is giving some contracts out. Imagine if we only had private traders, there'd be no higher prices. The private traders are just sitting back, not competing at all. It's frustrating that we can't all get the crop contracted at these high prices. Time for the news. One o'clock.